Caravan of Hope with me, Brent Caldwell. And me, COVID Omatic. Today is Thursday, the 11th of January 2024. And um, very shortly, we're going to be joined by um, a very, very dear friend of mine, Abram Stern, who's going to be talking to us from Jerusalem. Um, as part of the Caravan of Hope, we're trying to speak to people who have different um, lenses and different lived experiences of um, the conflict in Gaza, and he will be joining us very shortly. But um, just before we go to that, we just want to touch base about um, a few things happening around Altipoti Dunedin here in New Zealand. Well, it, it probably the, the thing is we're still having another peace march here on Saturday. Uh, meeting at the museum and you know unfortunately we're still having to have peace marches because the the conflict is still happening and I think it's about 22,000 now being killed in Gaza and 50,000 injured um, it's horrendous really when we watch that so for those of you listening here in Ōtipoti, Dunedin, that march it will meet at the Museum Reserve. At 2 o'clock. At 2pm this Saturday. And they'll march to the, the Octagon. Where there'll be some more addresses um, given yeah. in the centre of the city. Now, I've just recalled that you were going to um, mention a wee bit about the um, International um, Court of Justice. All right, yes. I think as we mentioned it last time, South Africa has actually put forward a motion to the International Court of Justice that what is happening in Gaza by the Netanyahu government is a, a form of genocide um, and calling for an immediate ceasefire and um, the availability of humanitarian aid um, and quite a number of countries, I'm, I'm not quite sure, saw a figure of 47 countries have have backed that. Um, at the moment, the New Zealand government seems to be silent. Uh, I was going to think of some kind of word. Mute. Noticeably silent on this and mm. still backing Israel with, with sort of without kind of, I wonder what's happened to the humanitarian hat of the New Zealand government actually. Mm. And um, I guess we watch with interest to see what happens there, but also yeah. remind our regular listeners that um, there's still actions you can take. You can email your MPs. You can um, just keep sending them messages that um, lay down those expectations that as our elected representatives, they, they do need to stand up for their fellow human beings. Yeah, and and I think it's important, like we'll be happening later in the, the programme, is to to look at different points of view, to, to see, um, you know, what is happening from, from all perspectives, because if there's going to be an end, and we hope, this is what we, we want, hope to this, uh, this violence and conflict and fear, that, um, you know, it actually has to come with some understanding of, of both sides mm. and uh, a joint wish to move towards peace. Yeah, and when we're talking about this, sometimes we we get criticised because we are focused on what's happening in Israel and Palestine because it's, I guess, it's on the news. We see it, but we're also 
you know, hoping for peace to be in other areas of the world, like Sudan, like Ukraine, like the Congo, like Somalia, Eritrea, Burma, mm-hmm. and um, the sort of internal conflicts happening in, in South America in particular. Yeah. Okay, well, um, thanks for that, Covido, but um, we'll now just um, segue into our guest interview with Abram Stern from Jerusalem. It's my very great pleasure to um, welcome in um, a very dear friend of mine, Mr. Abram Stern. Um, Abram is in Jerusalem and Israel, and um, he's been on my mind a great deal since um, the events of October the 7th. And in terms of the Caravan of Hope and our aims to create a more peaceful world, I thought it was important that we speak to some folk who might have some lived experience around what's currently happening and also have a point of view that might be worth sharing that um, we may not um, be able to be privy to due to the way the war and the conflict is reported. Um, We are by no means advocating for any particular uh, political position or um, other than just having a, a real keen interest to see um, a cessation of, of of the conflict and people living in peace. So with that very, very verbose introduction, Abram, <laughs> I'm wondering whether you right. might begin by perhaps telling us a wee bit about who you are, where you're from, and how is it that you are now living in Israel? Oh, uh, I don't know how much to edit. So I'll try to be as quick as I can, but it's a very long, circuitous, meandering tale, as is everybody's in story, life story. In theatre circles, when you're putting a script in Hollywood, they call it a an elevator pitch. So imagine you're going pitch, yeah. story building in an elevator, and you've got that long to get, okay. to do it. But don't cut yourself short. Well, <laughs> Uh, I'm a psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. I have two doctorates. One is from Cambridge and the other is from UCL. And, um, and I've always wanted to be a psychologist since the age of 15 or 16. Uh, it was a, big, a bit of a letdown to my grandmother. My grandmother, who was a very famous scientist, was very anti-Jewish and anti-religious. And there are two things that she didn't forgive me for. One was becoming an observant Jew. One second was studying psychology. So she was a good physicist and loved uh, science and thought that was very important and uh, thought psychology was a load of nonsense. so, uh, so, 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 I guess what I'm saying is, is that I was born into a Jewish family, but a family that ate bacon and prawns and didn't keep any Jewish holidays or Jewish festivals. So, uh, you might say that I 
took uh, and became interested for a variety of reasons. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm not going to explore right now, but 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 uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly uh, emotional, stroke, intellectual, and mostly because I felt a kind of spiritual yearning for otherness. And uh, my outlook in general as a psychologist is I'm ex I'm an existentialist. I believe in existential. I'm much more uh, a reader of existential philosophy, European philosophy, than I am uh, rationalist uh, British American philosophy. So that's where my heart is. I yearn for, for connection and to the other. And for me, that's my relationship to my uh, belief in God and belief in my religion. Um, I would say, yeah. I guess I'm interested to know because for, um, for complete openness, um, I have to say that Abram and I worked together in London at a school called Fairley House School, which was a center of excellence for dyslexic children uh, late last century. Yeah. And then I had the, the wonderful opportunity to visit you and your family in um, Washington in, yes. uh, uh, in uh, 2016. And I was stunned to find out that you were now living in Jerusalem. How did that come about? Uh, so, so, uh, um, so one of the reasons why I became an observant Jew is because uh, I come from a rather strange familial background and was in need of a more normal, loving, caring family background. And there's a family that basically adopted me into their family, adopted me into their family. And they were, I met them at my boarding school. They were like people like, uh, not house masters, but they were like, you know, they were uh, there to provide uh, pastoral support. And uh, they lived in the old city of Jerusalem and uh, lived there since 1980. And they basically took me in and then they brought me to Israel off for a gap year. And I studied in Yeshiva, a, a college of Jewish study, uh, before starting university. And I didn't really know what I was doing I, other than it was the first time in my life that I felt uh, connected to family and that was in Jerusalem in the old city and and uh, and even though it's not something that I was absorbed in for my own family I wasn't brought up in any way Jewish there was definitely a spiritual connection to to Jewish history and what it meant to be praying at the western wall and to to uh, to be uh, you know, to to uh, to be in a place that was rejuvenating. Now, I would uh, rejuvenated, you know, a Commonwealth that had last existed two thousand years previously. So that was definitely an excitement. But I would say also that I was never really. I think I, I would say that as as somebody who's born British and feels very British in many ways, although I think it's not necessarily a good fit, but you know, the, the Brits have a very curious relationship with nationalism um, in a way that my experience in America, Americans do have no problem with nationalism and, and, and the pride of being American. The Brits are always a little bit circumspect about what it means to be a nationalist and 
and what that really means, especially if you're a bit of a liberal left person like like me. So I would say, you know, uh, I was not a nationalist, and I didn't 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 really work for me nationalism in that way. Um, so Zionism in of itself was not something that I really well understood or felt comfortable with. And, and I would say even my adoption of observance and becoming, you know, what people would consider quite a religious Jew. And I'm sure that's when we met, right? I'd come back from my year in yeshiva and had all these ideas, very, you know, very singular ideas, not pluralist ideas um, about what that meant. And that's, that's okay because you're a kid and you're a young, you know, you're at university, and that's when you're meant to be forming these kinds of ideas and learning and developing. Um, it's kind of astonishing, right? But but my point is is that I was always open to the other. I was always open to creating friendships and relationships, even if like with Brent and Allison at the time and Adriana, and uh, there was never it was never uh, an adoption. Of, of religious observance that closed me to other people. And a large part of that is because of my relationship with my family, particularly my aunt, who isn't Jewish, but actually the person to whom I'm closest in my family, you know, she's the person who I'm closest in, 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 my, in, my, in, in my family. So, so I was never closed from the other in that sense. Does that make sense? So how did I come to Israel? You want to know that. So I came to Israel and I visited Israel throughout the 1990s at least two, three times a year. I felt, it felt it very much like a second home to me. Uh, my adoptive parents were there. My adoptive sister was there. She got married young, lots of children. I felt like an uncle to them. They felt they saw me as an uncle. So it was just this really, really close relationship. And that's where I, in many ways, felt very, very at home. Um, but at the same time, it was also complicated because there were all sorts of things going on. Certainly in the early 2000s, it was very, very complicated when the, as the Oslo peace process started falling apart and there were suicide bombs and all the different things that were happening at the time uh, and, 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 and so on and so forth. So I got married in 2005, uh, slightly on the late side. I was 35 and I married somebody who was raised in Buffalo, New York, Abby. And she uh, came from an Orthodox family, an observant family, but she, again, is a pluralist, and that's how we actually met through a pluralist, pluralist Jewish organization called Limud, where we learn and, and, and celebrate being Jewish in all its manifestations, whether it's arts or texts or politics or whatever it is, um, music. So we met at this festival, as it were, called Limud, and I moved to America. Uh, seven months later after meeting her, married her nine months later, we got married. And uh, part of that was uh, the possibility, as part of getting married, we knew there was a possibility that we might move to Israel. And for me, moving to Israel was a very exciting proposition, for many for reasons. One, because... Um, because culturally, the idea of being in a Jewish country was exciting to me, um, and living by Jewish time, uh, learning Hebrew, being near my family. So these were opportunities that I felt like were available, were part of the excitement. But no, never at the time 
being oh be, those were not like what i would say classical zionist reasons for living in israel okay so i moved to israel in 2007 and we lived in jerusalem and um we we came with a three-month-old baby we had another child and we lived in israel for four years and um and there were good four years in many ways but in 2000 uh, uh, 2011 we decided to leave we decided to leave for a whole bunch of reasons first i wasn't sure about my my life in israel in terms of what i was doing and be, you know and what how, who i wanted to be as a profession i wanted to be and so on and so forth but also because abby was offered a great opportunity uh, to work at hillel a jewish student organization and its international centers based in Washington, D.C. So like, you know what, it wasn't working out for me professionally, we'll move back. The moment I stepped on that plane, it was July 11th, 2011, and Abby was six months pregnant and with our third child, Amel, and we had two little children with us. We stepped on that plane and I knew, we both knew, we'd made a terrible mistake. And that was the point where I realized that my home is Israel. My home is Jerusalem. This is, is not because, because there is a connection, a powerful connection to meaningfulness, to a kind of a spiritual meaningfulness that was much more important than I'd understood. And it was that moment that I left that I realized we had to come back. And that's what we did. We came back in 2018. And there's a whole host of reasons why 2018. I didn't, I just, you know, as I like to, yeah, as I like to joke, I'm just finish, as I like to joke, I didn't want to die in Silver Spring. I just didn't feel that that was where I wanted to live the rest of my life. And I could probably say the same about when I lived in London. You know, I, right. there is, I, 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 that does resonate with me. So can I maybe just take us away from you? Sure and sort of come yeah. not away from you, but come into today and maybe talk about um, what your current lived experience is in Jerusalem, particularly given the, the situation that's happening in your part of the world. Um, mm. Yes, I'm, I'm interested to know what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis for you. What, what types of information and media coverage do you get about what's happening in Gaza and what's mm. your sense of what the, the feeling is across the nation? Is that, is, that's, well, very, that's several questions. I mean, several I mean, it's, it's, it's very general. It's very general and a lot's happened in the last three months and how I felt three months ago is different to how I felt two months ago to how I feel now. So I, again, there's a lot to unpack and it doesn't sound like we have enough time to fully unpack it, but I can tell you, I can tell you uh, Jerusalem on the whole has been fairly sheltered. I think over the last few months, we've only had to go to our shelters eight times, seven or eight times. Uh, so we've been fairly sheltered from the worst of uh, the conflict and the war. And I would say that, um, that most people are... Uh, numb uh and numbness i associate with a more like numb depressed 
is 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 what I think. I think. I mean, we live our lives. There's this new normal, and that's what we do, right? When when terrible things happen, when horrifying things happen, wherever you are in the world, whether it's nine eleven or seven seven or you know uh, people being gunned down in Christchurch, there you, you like you say your world has shifted and changed in some way and you adapt and you try to live with what you, how you can. And again, like I'm speaking as personally, but I'm also speaking as a psychologist. Um, and I try to be as a psychologist, I try to be solution oriented and solution oriented means I'm much more interested in the future than I am in the past, which I know sounds rather odd as a psychologist, but that's the kind of psychologist I am. And, and uh, and so I'd say, you know, like, uh, I think in general, uh, we find it hard to feel joy. So we had a bar mitzvah last week um, of very close friends, and it was a beautiful experience, but at the same time, deeply scarred. Uh, it couldn't it couldn't be joyful. So you know, at the chuppah. At the Jewish marriage, we break a glass, and we break a glass as a remembrance that the temple is not rebuilt, that the Jews were exiled, that there is a brokenness in the world, and and the glass is really broken. Mm. The glass is really broken, and then we look further away than we ever dreamed of that. That. It's further than we could ever could possibly imagine that from the glass being repaired, and I think people are very uh, are very unhappy about that. Um, we're all, yeah. So I, I acknowledge that 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 must be very very hard, you know, particularly like you say celebrations in a in a time as it is. For for people listening, um, Abram and I had a very lengthy discussion last night when we kind of reconnected, and, and we did talk about um, the position of the government and what what the grassroots, you know, that the I think we spoke about how there's been a lot of unsettled feeling about the the current regime in Israel, and how people feel about the actions of the government prior. To the current situation, and I guess because sure. the the reporting we get here, and I think we talked about this last night, is we get snippets which infer, but we don't get a lot of in depth information. Or if we do, we have to um, be, be care, listen carefully for depending on who it's coming from. But for example, in Israel, is there an opposition to the current situation in Gaza? Is is there is there are people able to speak out and say, you know, like I was saying to you last night with my humanitarian hat on, I just can't, I just can't mm. abide what's going on. Is there a voice like that? So again, I, th I think that's a very difficult question to answer. First of all, like I read what I read and I speak to whom I speak, but I, I don't know if that makes me necessarily a a good, uh, you know, a good representative representative sample. Uh, and in the end, we all are influenced by our own uh, our own biases. We are filled with our own biases, and our biases 
cloud what you know cloud uh, our vision about these kinds of things especially especially when there's a kind of high profile conflict as there is between the palestinians and the jews but uh yeah okay so yeah that was probably a bit mean to try and paint you into a corner <laughs> but we've seen footage of large protests outside government buildings you know of of, of um the families of the hostages um sort of uh trying to um change the emphasis yeah i mean i mean protests are very much allowed in this country and there are people for sure that are very concerned about the hostage situation but i don't think anybody knows exactly what to do so i i, I mean i think i think that's the the problem is is um the hostages I think people understand the hostages are too valuable to Hamas. The chances that they're going to be released are virtually zero uh, at this current stage. I just don't. I, I think it's very unlikely. But because there's just too much, there's just too much value to the hostages. Um, and um, Sinwar, I think, is reported as, as being probably in South. They probably know where he is but it's pretty impregnable because he surrounded himself with these hostages so it makes getting to him virtually impossible but 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 so I, you know so i i think even even amongst the hostage families there is no there's not very much real agreement about what's the best thing to do i do think i do think uh, again like i, I want to be clear like the overwhelming feeling um, uh, about about certainly in the first first month and a half, and I still think that feeling is still present. But you can't maintain rage and anger. Uh, there was just a profound anger towards uh, towards the government, and. And I think that was multifold. I think it was not just a, I think it's a complex anger because the, because there's, there is an, there is a, a very clear contract between the Israeli government and its people. And that is we, we, our job is to keep Jews safe in this country and to do whatever we need to do in order to keep Jews safe in this country. And that contract was broken on October 7th. So, so the anger is absolutely toward an implacable anger towards Hamas, but an also implacable anger towards Netanyahu and the, the, the people that, that are in his government. And, uh, and I think again, like, you know, uh, again, I don't want to take too, I mean, it's too complex to, to completely unpack, but uh, you know, this this is not again. It's not this is a, the the anger is very deep, and the, there's a saying in this country that we have no state, we only have the people. That was what was being said. You know, the res what do I mean by that? The people who were protesting, they set up the volunteer systems, they set up the structures to provide services to to the 250, 300,000 people who've been internally displaced in Israel, right? You have 200,000 people from the north who cannot live in their homes. 
and you have between 70 to 80,000 people in the South who cannot live in their homes. So they've all been displaced and they needed huge support and the government wasn't able to do it. They also provided, uh, yeah. Can I be clear, when you, when you say the 300,000 and, um, and the people in the South, you're, you're speaking of Israeli citizens. Yeah, the internal, as I said, the internally displaced Israeli citizens. Who are displaced mm -hmm. because of the of what's going on at the moment. Yes, they're internally displaced because their safety their safety cannot be guaranteed in the north, and certainly can't be guaranteed in the south. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, understood. So, so, so again, like, so there's as I said, all these people, tremendous spirit of volunteerism. Tremendous. Yeah. Did you want to ask something, Kavita? No, I, I was just glad that you clarified that because I wasn't sure myself. I hadn't heard that from anywhere. Um, that that, that is, uh, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So so uh, so the point is is that is 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 that the you know and and for the first eight weeks, not a single government minister went to any of the funerals. I mean, it was just shocking. Just absolutely shocking. There was just a total lack of the government providing any kind of uh, uh, care towards the people. And the people were really hurting. It's really strange. Um, and, and, very strange. And I think it's because of what happened before, where this incredible, this incredible kind of almost to the level of the civil war, but not quite, of what was going on with the, the, the plans for overhauling the way in which the judicial system works in this country. And, and I think there was just, and, I, and I, what I find so interesting is, again, like, you know, Across the country, the vast majority of people, like 65%, I think it was at least 65%, right, left, wherever you were, were against what this government were trying to do. And, and could, I think... Could you tell us what the government was trying to do, just to make it clear for us? Yeah, sure. So the government was trying, the government was trying to redefine the, the how the Supreme Court is is constituted and what the supreme court could could make decisions about so they they wanted to say is whoever's in control chooses uh who should go on the supreme court so which means that you can then control you know pick friendly judges and reduce the capacity for the supreme court to um, overturn or challenge uh, laws that have been passed by the Knesset. Yeah, there, there, there was um, there was something I read in the in the paper here recently saying that that change would have been beneficial personally to Netanyahu. Oh yes, oh for sure, because it meant that he could basically get. Uh, he, he could he, he basically could control his own case where he doesn't currently have that now. I mean, things like can you just summarily 
can the executive just fire anybody in the civil service like the attorney general? So the Supreme Court would say no, <laughs> right? But the attorney general is the person that's running the case against Netanyahu. So you can see the conflicts of interest. Yeah. Um, that, are, that, are, that are absolutely so the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court provides checks and balances on the the government. Correct, it, it does, but it wasn't meant to be that way, and I think that's part of the problem. I think everybody agrees there should be some reform of the Supreme Court. The way in which it's been empowered is not not particularly democratic. It makes decisions that are not democratic. Personally, I think they're wise, but there are plenty of people who don't think it's wise. <laughs> I think the Supreme Court makes very good decisions, <laughs> right? So, but on the whole, I think they make excellent decisions. But that's great. But 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 that's not the majority. Of the, that's not the, many of the country. Not the majority. But that's not many in this country. Yeah. Okay, I'm just noticing that because I've got the cheap version of this um, software, I'm going to run out of time in six minutes, and that's okay because we can okay. we can jump across. But um, when, yes. when we're about to run out of time, I'll go like that and you can stop speaking and then right. I'll quickly set up another meeting for you. And, and okay. Are you still... Um, are you still happy to... Are you, have you got fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay for how long you want. Absolutely okay. fine, absolutely fine. So um, one question I'd like to ask you in, in this time is... Yeah. When I, I was telling you about the types of media feeding that we get. I mean, yeah. you know, the internet is, you know, what is it, a thousand miles wide and one centimeter thick. Sure. And lots of the the news is based on clickbait, what you can read in a screen. Yeah. When yeah. we were talking last yeah. night, you, you mentioned a, a couple of news sources that you, um, because you were saying you tap into different points of view, and um, I was wondering whether you could talk about some of the. The, the messaging so, so I, I, I'm not going to talk about I, I'll talk about what I use as my main sources of information yeah. um, so uh, uh, first of all within Israel there are several excellent uh, news organizations uh, there's uh, Ynet which is right wing Haaretz which is left wing and then there's the Times of Israel, which I happen to think is the the best, uh, which is very much middle of the road, very much in the middle, very, very, very much in the middle, although very anti-government, actually. They're very anti this government. The truth is, I think everybody's anti this government. At this stage, I think 80% of this country are just sick of these people and they want them out. Um, so, I, you know, so I, I think this, I, I want to be very clear. Uh, I want to say there's almost a 95% unity of purpose about this war. I do want to be clear about that, that 95% of Israelis think this war is necessary and uh, and 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 there's very high level of support for the IDF and for what's happening. So I do want to be clear that the people dislike this government intensely, but I but but see this war as necessary. Now, I would I, I, I I think there are caveats to that, which we can go into, but I, but I, and I'm happy to explore that, why I think that's the case, but, but, um, but I, but I, uh, so, but as I said, you've got three sources of news in Israel uh, that are available in English, Haaretz, left wing, Ynet, right wing, and in the middle of the road, Times of Israel, which I haven't 
think is the best. Um, I also read The Economist because um, I think it's a great newspaper. And again, I'm fundamentally a liberal and I mean liberal in the classic sense of the word liberal, right? Uh, believers in you know democratic values, freedom of speech, all these things that I think are really important to good life. And uh, so I think The Economist is wonderful. I obviously I read and listen to the BBC. Um, I also read the New York Times and the Atlantic magazine. Yeah. So if I could pick you up on that, because obviously having lived in the UK, I'm a big fan of the BBC. Are you yeah. feeling that the story or the situation has been accurately um, presented? Uh, I think I think that's a very difficult question to answer, actually, um, because because I mean when I say I listen to the BBC, what I'm talking about is I I listen to the Today program, and I think the Today program is above and beyond any other news program. Mm. And I really trust the journalism and I think they're exceptional. I, I do think they're exceptional. But I think also, you know, what they report, and, and this is kind of the BBC stance on the whole, I've, I've seen some terrible things that the BBC have done, not so much the Today program, but what, the, way they, the way they do it is they report what they see they report what they see, right? Which, you know, that's, I suppose that's kind of their job. They report what they see and what they see is really awful. But it's very hard to make sense of what you see if you lack context. And, and it's not, I don't know how much it is the today's program's responsibility to provide that context. Okay, so that's a really good place to step off. So once again, thanks very much to Abram Stern. Great. Love okay. You. okay, sweet. Cheers, bud. Okay, bye. 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 You've been listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every human being on Earth. Find us on Facebook or visit our website. It's gonna take a lot of love to change the way things are. It's gonna take a lot of love. We won't get too far. So if you look in my direction and we don't see Protection and so do.